Welcome to the Sensible Center Podcast, where two middle-aged guys drunkenly talk politics and political reform. Grab an adult beverage and enjoy the show. Further information can be found at SensibleCenterPack.com. You can reach us at SensibleCenterPack at gmail.com or follow us on X at USASCPack. Hey, Bob. Hey, Kevin. What's up, man? You there? Uh, yes, sir. What is up? It's November already. What happened to time? At <laughs> the time, exactly. You know, I haven't been it's eating holiday now. season. I've I've eaten nothing for the last three weeks because come Thanksgiving, I'll be able to catch up with thirty five thousand calories, and that's the plan I have every year. That's a good idea. I'll start tomorrow. I'll start that tomorrow. All right. It's it, does it do the colors change down in Tennessee? You know, we had a cold snap. The colors were just starting to change, and then we had a few days of really cold weather. And all of a sudden, leaves fell off a bunch of the trees. So half the trees now, the color's changing. The other half, the leaves disappeared because of deep trees for a few days. And today, it was 84. So wow. that's Tennessee for you right now. Yeah. We've had a spectacular fall up here in Wisconsin. The trees, I don't know what happened this year, but they were quite beautiful. Uh, got the boat out of the water, which is good. We got it out before November. The 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 dock and the lift are are sitting on the shore, and now all you have to do is uh, pay attention and make sure you don't get hit by a stray bullet. You know, because <laughs> it's, it's it's turning hunting into season. hunting. It is hunting season. The deer, the deer have they to do are, the same. They have to make sure they don't get hit by a stray bullet or a vehicle for a minute. Yeah, the deer they are scrambling. Yeah, I've seen a lot of them down here too. They're scrambling, on, but the the Packers won, didn't they, this weekend? Yeah, finally. Man. <laughs> it's been a painful year. It has been awful. It's like I, I start, I'm starting to feel like a Bears fan. I don't know. Ever since I moved up here, they've pretty much sucked. So uh, maybe I brought slow. it. Maybe I brought the uh, the Bears virus up, up north. I need to uh, rent you an apartment down in Chicago land, I suppose. That's right. <laughs> At least for the weekends, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll check to see if Cabrini Green's still around. We'll get you one of those. Yeah, I, I, had, a, I had a neighbor. They were their season ticket holders here, and I was talking to her, and and it sounded like she was looking to get rid of some some tickets. Yeah, they're bad. <laughs> I'd like to go. I've never I've never gone. So oh, you have it's, to. It's part of my goals to while we're here to go to a Packers game and a bad at least a, a Badgers game too, since they're pretty big up here too. So. The Packers used to actually play once in a while, I think, in Madison and definitely Milwaukee County. Uh, I don't know why they stopped, but um, it, w- it was kind of nice because in Chicagoland, you could just drive up to Milwaukee and see them, you know, once or twice a year there. Right. Although you're not too far from Green Bay, what, maybe an hour and a half, two hours? At yeah, most? we're not too bad. Two, a little less than two, I think. Yeah, you should get up there. It's great. Maybe wait yeah, till we'll, it's good. We'll have to do that. Um just a little, we got a little feedback on, like, if you remember last episode, we picked up the speed of our uh, podcast, um, and some of the feedback we got uh, through the emails was the general consensus was was positive because it gave them less time to focus on the stupidity of what we were saying, and <laughs> that appears to be a net benefit, so <laughs> I, think, I think if we keep on making it quicker, I think that's our strategy. 
<laughs> I don't even know what to say. The donations will roll right in. Yeah, and in other news, Bob, I was reading the Beverage News Weekly that I get every week. Uh, that's why they call it the Beverage News Weekly. And the sales of Cinnamon Burst Captain Morgan's has spiked. No, and the I'm article not. I read, they were just befuddled for the reason for the spike in sales. It says it's been a laggard in the brand, in the category, but it's picked up in the beginning of October. They thought so it was about, a seasonal thing, but hey, you know, maybe what, we have some reach. What, can you uh, check the uh, the sales numbers on aloe-coated toilet paper as well? See if there's any correlation there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, there probably is a pretty high correlation, I'm guessing. <laughs> So, speaking of which, what are, you, what are you drinking tonight? Well, I have a couple things tonight, actually. Kevin, thank you for asking. I have a Penelope Architect straight bourbon whiskey barrel strength. Um, it's 110 proof and 55%. Um, actually, just opened it tonight. It is uh, has, has strong caramel notes as well as oak. And then, in honor of my cat, Stella, who died earlier this week, I opened a uh, Stella Artois beer. Um, she was actually named after this beer. Um, oh, really? When, when we, when we, our last cat had the same name as a beer, and we, her name was Corona. We did not name our last cat, but she came, and her name was Corona. And then when we got the new cat, Stella, um, we knew we wanted to name her after a beer, so we started looking online for rescues of cats named Stella, and we found her. And unfortunately, she's she left us this week, but. Uh, I bought a so, six-pack of Stella in honor of her, and I'm going to have one tonight. So wait a second. You actually went and looked for a cat named after a beer? Yes, sir. That I don't I don't think anyone's ever done that, Bob. Yeah, that's how we found her. So is it going to be a bourbon next time, or, or is it going to be a wine? We'll see. Um, I don't know if there will be a next time yet. We haven't decided. we got to wait till we get into our new house. And yeah, you guys we'll need a dog or something. Yeah, dogs. dogs. I I love dogs, but I'm not one who would really want to pick up after a dog. And I like to travel a lot, and I don't yeah, really dogs want to pay at work. Yep. Yeah, I don't want to pay to you know put it in, put it up for a week or two, and I feel bad to do that to a pet anyway, or ask someone to take care of it. So, you know, you you can leave your cat alone for probably up to two weeks if you give it enough food and water, and That's right. litter box space. So, if Aren't we do you, another pet, it'll probably be a cat, but I'm not really sure on that one yet. Once you teach them how to clean their own litter box, you you know you're well ahead of the game. That you know, I need to. Have you ever seen those? You can teach, train them to use the toilet. It's for real. You can do it. Go look online. Everybody listening should do this. So the way it works, first way you do it, you put the litter box. It fits nicely in the, the toilet around the seat, and then you start slowly to make that litter box smaller and then you eventually just remove it and the cat just knows it goes up on the toilet and it goes in the toilet sure this wasn't a dream fantasy of yours bob it's absolutely real it's out there in the internet right. you can do it i've never tried but i might aspire to if i ever get a cat again i don't know if i want that in my search engine though <laughs> <laughs> oh come on now the feds already got worse on you <laughs> that's right that's true so anyways i am drinking tequila bob tonight uh the because there's nothing better to drink on a, on a, what day is it? Wednesday night. Uh, it's uh, Cinco Blancos. I tried to get some information on it, but 
must be really high end because there's nothing on the internet about it. Cinco uh, blancos. That means cinco blancos. Five five white? whites. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> Just could for the, the record, Mexican. Kevin's the lefty in this conversation. <laughs> could be the Mexican version that. of the KKK. Yeah. <laughs> white. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's, Maybe it is from Mexico. Represents sheets, five sheets to the wind. <laughs> it is from Mexico, and of course, I'm drinking it on the rocks, as I always do. So I can't tell you anything about it, but it tastes good. It's going That's down good. next. Uh, so anyway, we got a we got a lot of things to discuss since we haven't been around for a while and the earth keeps on moving towards uh, extinction here it appears <laughs> appears like we're on a glide path to uh total destruction and extinction so that's Second, a good thing or, a minute ago i i read that the united states bombed somalia oh, don't have a lot of it's, details on that but we went after probably some iranian funded is clinton back in office there <laughs> well the left is so you yeah, may yeah, as well be clinton sure somalia is an easy target right uh, yeah, I don't know. You know what? Uh, and uh, our goal is not to be partisan, so maybe I should take that comment back. That's right. right. Take it back. Rewind. Just as guilty. The right is just as guilty. Rewind. We'll that. get into that tonight. I think. So anyway, uh, yeah, there was a Republican debate tonight, and since you don't have TV, you didn't catch it. But I sent you some of the things. Vivek wasn't fine for him. Let's just say that he he came up with his lines about you know high heels and various. He was the only one that was talking. That we've got to spend, stop spending money and and fun, funding all these wars. <laughs> Everyone else is a hawk on that panel, so that puts uh, him my number one candidate right there. Tim Scott uh, said we need to be thinking about a three front war. Uh, <laughs> it was it was crazy uh, as far as what they want to drag us into. But um, Trump we hasn't well, said Trump, much about Trump, the wars, has he? No, no, he's he's playing it he's playing it smart, I guess. I don't um, know if that's smart. Maybe it is. Yeah, um, but he wasn't there anyway, so he was he was at another rally. So until he's part of the debates, I I don't know if there's any any point in talking about those. Um, so we'll talk about his uh, fraud trial, and I've I don't know if you've been following. Uh, his daughter was up on the stand today. All the kids know nothing about the financial statements or accounting for that matter. I thought they were business people, but evidently they don't know. What's his daughter's name again? I want to say Ivanka. Ivanka. It's not. Is it Ivanka? Yes, it is. Who's Ivanka. his wife? Ivana. Ivanka. Okay, Ivanka. I know. Ivanka. Yeah, Ivanka doesn't strike me as an accountant type. So I don't know if she really <laughs> would know. None about. of them. None of them frankly do. Neither <laughs> Eric. Neither Eric or Don Jr. strikes me as like, accountant yeah. types either. But there's none of them are any. People. You know, none of them are like any Hunter Biden. You know, they're not good with money. So I've actually given it thought since Trump was on the stand earlier in the week. And, and I mean, on this trial, I have to say they've overreached. He shouldn't, this shouldn't be a trial. I wish they wouldn't have brought him up on these charges. I think it's having been in commercial banking most of my life, the idea that they're bringing him up on fraud charges for inflated real estate values on a, on what appears to be a personal type financial statement for for guarantees of loans and considering the banks aren't bringing the charges against him the people who have actually lent him money um and it's the uh new york attorney general or district attorney that's doing it 
that smells to me somewhat. And I'm a liberal. I just think I, it's stupid to, to, to have this out there. Because to me, it just serves its purpose that it's they're after them. Because... How come? I mean, there's no victim, right? There's no victim, like you said. The, the banks aren't claiming he did wrong. The banks got their money back and more. At this time, they did, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, on the other, you know, on his other bankruptcies, I guess the the time has run on those. But and this, this judge does seem pretty shady as well. I mean, he seems pretty biased. He made some comments as to you know uh, Trump's guilt early on in the trial prior to anything even happening. I, I've got, I've definitely got some concerns here, but I also think you and you, we've established this already. I do kind of believe to use Trump's words. This is kind of a witch hunt. The intent was to discredit him, take him away from the campaign trail and hurt his campaign. And I, I think probably there will be some convictions, but I also think they'll get overturned on appeal. Most of them, if not all of them. Yeah, I so mean, that, in my, that applies to New York and Georgia. Well, I mean, in my perfect world, they would have just charged them in Georgia uh, simply because it's the state. And I think it's the strongest of the of the cases. The documents thing, that's that's just going to that's just going to be a mess. Um, the federal uh, election thing, uh, I think they have enough specific facts in Georgia. I wish everything was just focused there, but this is the way it goes. So. I think, it, as we've talked about before, I think it's helping him politically. And having this as the first case that, you know, testimony's going on and it's just not a good look. I mean, they're, they're going to convict him of something and he's going to appeal and then it's going to go on. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just not a good look, I don't think. And, and one of the Fox News correspondents um, said that it, it's similar to charging somebody – uh, pulling somebody over for speeding when everyone else is speeding mm -hmm. <laughs> and kind of doing it, you know, on that basis, which, yes, I I do believe he likely inflated the value. So I don't think there's any argument, although they, they're trying to muddy the waters a little bit, that he didn't inflate his, his, his values. I, I, it sounds like the evidence is fairly clear that that occurred, but it's a question it, of... Yeah, I think that always happens unless right. you're... You know, unless you're trying to get lower taxes, right? Right. So, it's the it's the game, right? Yeah, it's the game. Um, Every I, I would say ninety percent, probably a hundred percent of seasoned investors do that sort of thing, especially yeah, I mean, in the I, real estate area. Yeah, I was talking to some friends who's who you know do real estate lending. They're like, yeah, this 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 is very common. It's not. It's a subjective thing, largely, and. Unless, and the unless it's completely obvious and somebody and somebody got hurt, you know, financially, and then in which case the banks would probably bring charges for losses or or stuff like that. But that's not the case here. So the prosecutor ran said, "We're going to go after him. We're going to get him. We're going to go after yeah. his whole family yeah. and this and that." And then you know, I, it just feels so political. And, but it's backfiring too. And yeah. the cases are helping Trump. CNN yeah. came out with a poll today. He's up on Biden by four points. He had the other two candidates in, being Kennedy and West. Trump's up by six points, and he's losing five of six swing states. That's All amazing. Right. I mean, that's uh, if you're Trump, that's exactly what you want. I don't know what these lawsuits are costing him. I haven't done a lot of digging there. I don't. I'm, I'm making the assumption that he's paying for these lawsuits off of donations and funding. So it's probably not costing him a dime. It's cheaper than but campaign ads. It, 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 
It is probably. All right, let's just, move on. Uh, uh, go ahead. It's just political stupidity in my mind, but we'll see. Yep, it's definitely I mean, the, the the political environment is changing, and it'll change over the next year. So we don't know what it's going to look like a year from now, but um, there there's certainly people moving from city to country still, and it's going to affect voting patterns and things like that. So we'll see what happens. Speaking of backfiring, so uh, I think last time we spoke, there wasn't a Speaker of the House. Now we have Mike Johnson as Speaker of the House. And as I've been thinking about this, I think this is another case of um, the Democrats um, sort of, I think they wanted this. I think they wanted a an extreme Speaker that they can run against in 2024. I think that was their gamble. They've been known to do this before and in primaries, try to get the most extreme candidate to run against. So I think that's why they voted to kick out um, uh, McCarthy to hope that the Republicans would put somebody fairly extreme. And Johnson, well, it's not probably not as extreme as Jordan, but he does have um, lots of views that they can see themselves as running against yeah, clearly a big in some ways is potentially more extreme in some of his religious ideals right definitely on um, the, relig the religious side yeah he, he's very uh opposed to like marijuana legalization for instance and i think um the ties are kind of turning there right like so the religious ideals in that i think probably is not going to appeal to a younger crowd you know as ohio for instance just legalized that I don't know. That's going to be kind of interesting. But that said, to date, there's no you, no new Ukraine bill, right? I'm, which I love. Um, my my opinion hasn't changed. We shouldn't be funding either war, and they did fund Israel since he's been leader or speaker. No no new Ukraine bill. No new Ukraine money. I mean, that's right there. That's a win. Uh, he's about to get tested, though. Don't you think? I think the House has till eleven seventeen to figure out the spending thing. Yep, he's got uh, a short leash to get it done. So I don't know how he's going to go about that. I don't know. I, I suspect they'll do some sort of a continuing resolution with some guaranteed cuts that are deeper than the last time around. Yeah, it sounds like they were willing to go to the end of the year to get something. I, I, I don't suspect that we'll see a, a shutdown. I don't, I don't think that's where he was positioning. But, I mean, we'll see if the gamble pays off. Clearly the Dems thought if they brought – uh, you know, a more extreme speaker in that they'd have somebody to run against, but then it's not really necessarily the best thing for the country. But like you said, maybe it is if they're stuck and not able to fund some of these bills. That's uh, that's really how I look at it. I always see Congress as the best Congresses can't get anything done. <laughs> and we'll we'll talk about the role of government later. So <laughs> you you like the you like the gridlock and. And sometimes it does work in the advantage. Uh, speaking of Israel and funding, uh, clearly that that is that ground campaign looks like it's going to be a long and sort of painful one. I they're kind of just going through and and sort of raising and going into the tunnels and so I guess the game plan is to destroy Hamas for the time being and build a whole new generation of Palestinian hatred against the Jews. Is that is, is that the game plan here? I don't. I don't, I've spent I don't some energy thinking about this. Um, you know, it's it's a difficult situation. 
If I was Israel, I'd do everything I could get could do to get rid of Hamas. You got to. I mean, you can't you can't have that happen again. I, I agree. Stuff that happened. I agree. I, if I'm Israel, I probably take this as an opportunity. Anytime anybody decides to fire another rocket at me in the near term, if they're coming from Jordan or, or Lebanon, handle that right. Um, Syria, Iran. I think uh, the Saudis have actually shown a willingness to protect Israel when when a missile was fired over their borders at Israel, which is kind of nice. Um, yep, I, I think they uh, have. Um, I, I, I support their right to defend themselves. I think they absolutely should do that. I'm I'm not in support of us funding any more war. I don't like us in the middle of it. Anytime we get in the middle of a war, it reeks of you know, money laundering, spending money, exerting our influence so we can get more oil or cheaper oil anyway. And it, it really, really works out well. It really, really works, works out well. And the interesting thing here, and, and I've been thinking about it too, is clearly there's been the Arab uh, sort of push, especially with the Abraham Accords and things like that, that Jared and Trump started instilling where, there were agreements between the Arab nations and, and Israel. Um, and like you said, Saudi appears to be protecting Israel. Maybe that's ultimately the solution, that they get involved with the the negotiation for the Palestinians. They step up to the plate. Uh, again, when you create a vacuum, if we're not involved, if we back off, maybe somebody else will step in. We don't have that much control over it, but you think they would have... Uh, the ability and more interest in seeing a resolution. Iran would be threatened by that, clearly. Um, and I think that's part of why Hamas possibly attacked Israel, because Iran sort of saw the Arab world aligning more with Israel against Iran. But then again, that dynamic has to play out, and maybe there's just a stalemate on that basis. And some solution comes in with the Palestinian uh, Israel arrangement with the Arab world sort of negotiating because the Palestinians clearly don't Abbas doesn't appear to be a strong leader, doesn't have power that's why Hamas kind of stepped into the void um, I feel for the, the people of Palestine of course, the innocent yeah. people, absolutely I, I don't know how many of them voted for Hamas and continue to support Hamas and how many of them did it out of fear I'm sure there is some of that right. as well and in the support sphere. Um, at the same time, I understand why a country like Egypt wouldn't want them coming over their borders. Right? There, there's a real reason Egypt doesn't want it, doesn't want to accept refugees. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at this point, like I, we said before, the best thing is that Israel uh, degrades and eliminates Hamas, but then you still sort of have to have a political diplomatic solution right um other than just occupying the territory even more than you you had been previously which i don't think is ultimately a, a solution so just pray that it doesn't become bigger right that it doesn't expand and um that there's not there's there's limited stuff continued that's suffering the thing there's there's evidence out there that like russia is supporting the other side and russia typically has supported 
is real, right? And now there's there's evidence that they're not really supporting them. Could say the same thing about uh, China, for that matter. I, I think there are countries and powers that be that will probably do whatever they can to kind of hurt us and put us deeper in a hole too. So it's a really interesting situation. And I think the way we can win that is just to keep our money to ourselves and just back away. I'm not necessarily opposed to selling weapons. I, I am opposed to giving weapons and giving money. Israel wants to buy weapons from us, then so be it. But absolutely, we should not be sending money. Sending money or troops, right? No. Or free weapons. All right, we're in agreement there, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. I'm going to want to change direction a bit here. I did read, and I guess it's it's been in the news in the last week, Sam Bankman-Fried, who I don't think we've talked about on the podcast before, um, got convicted of fraud and conspiracy and money laundering charges. Evidently, uh, it, it could face up to 110 years. So just to rewind, this is... So Sam Bankman-Fried, I just read a book, Michael Lewis, who wrote The Big Short and several other financial books, spent time, interestingly enough, he was following the guy before the story was that um, and Sam Bankman-Fried was part of FTX, which was a cryptocurrency exchange. Um, if you remember, that kind of collapsed and fell apart. And we could talk about what happened. But Michael Lewis was actually started to talk to him well before, several years before, because he had a friend who wanted to invest with Sam Bankman-Fried. So he asked Michael to check him out. And so he began this relationship and talking with Sam, and then he ended up writing this book after the collapse. He actually was with him throughout the collapse and after the collapse. So it was kind of interesting that he had this window into the world uh, of Mr. Bankman-Fried. My take, and I don't know how much you know about this, the whole story, but my take is he's not, he wasn't a fraudster. Although he's been convicted of fraud, I think he, he's not a Bernie Madoff. I don't think it was ever an intention to defraud people. Very strange character, probably on the uh, on the spectrum to say the least. Um, and we could get into this effective altruism that he participated in, but he just See, had I'd a different argue mindset. that I I don't know I, I I don't know if he had a different mindset. I think with the amount of money he was giving in political donations and the amount of laundering that was happening through that platform, I think that he kind of gambled. And thought that he was protected based upon that. He gave a lot of money away. A lot of money went to Ukraine and back through that platform as well. You're saying, so what are you, what are you saying? I mean, he it definitely, we could get into the effect of altruism. There was money flying out the door every which way. Uh, and yeah. investments and contributions and, and everything. That's part of the effective altruism plot. He didn't. If you say the guy, he didn't live an ostentatious lifestyle. He actually lived with many other people uh, in the movement, kind of in a communal setting. Um, His parents had some nice didn't seem to care too much about. Maybe maybe I'm being snowed, but my take is he didn't care too much about money. Uh, he was going to give most of all or all of it away. Um, the nature of the now, this all happened within probably less than a two-year period. He was initially a trader um, on Wall Street. Primarily, the, the thought was 
the thought in regard to effective altruism is to try to do the most good, net good for the most people, right? So his thought was, I could be, he's a very smart guy. I could become a doctor. If I'm a doctor, I can only help so many people. But if I make a ton of money, I could fund all these other things. Um, I could fund a thousand doctors going to Africa and make net so much more good. He was convicted, though. He was convicted. And, and he moved not, money in a fashion that, in short, defrauded. Well, here's here here's investors. my take on here's my take on what happened. You're dealing with cryptos, right? Um, to begin with, and, and there's some interesting things on, on cryptos in the book uh, that Michael Lewis pointed out. He said, and I've I've got a thing on crypto. I I still think it's it's the biggest uh, scam in town. But he said that, that people in the crypto joined together by their fear of trust that they erected a parallel financial system that required more trust from its users than the traditional financial system, which is kind of true. Mm -hmm. um, also pointed out, it's estimated that 80% or more of the volume on second and third tier crypto exchanges were fake, and 30% on the top tier exchanges were fake. So the trades weren't actually occurring. They made it look like there was more volume than there actually was. Um, so you have a, a terribly unregulated uh, market yeah. to begin it's with. It's one right? thing when that happens on Twitter. It's another thing when that happens on a, on a, on any crypto or, or market platform for that matter. So you have people giving him money. He, he first he, he had first formed this hedge fund, Alameda Research, to invest as hedge funds do in sort of arbitrage opportunities, which is what he was doing at a hedge fund before. So he established this hedge fund, got some investors in that, started doing trades, then realized that there was an opportunity to form a crypto exchange. So he formed the crypto exchange FTX, which he actually appeared to want to have regulated and be very transparent, got all this money in, it ended up in Alameda because supposedly he couldn't open up accounts in the U.S. crypto accounts um, within the exchange, so he opened it up within Alameda. So there was all this money. They ended up investing it. Crypto collapsed. There were some tweets from competitors that caused a run on the exchange, and obviously they had a bunch of illiquid assets that they couldn't get out of to fund the withdrawals out of the crypto. That's kind of the high-level story. At the end of the day, it appears like maybe the losses aren't going to be that large, or there might not be. I mean, Forbes wrote an article last week that it said that the uh, customers of FTX will recoup uh, pretty much a good majority. I, I didn't know if they came up with an actual percentage, but Michael of Lewis their, actually of actually their crypto went, or of their money. There's a difference, right? Of the money that they invested. Other well, account other account values. How, how low is crypto right now compared to where it would have been had had the whole scandal had not happened? That's the question I have. Well, right? I think it's actually bounced. It depends on what asset you're holding it in, but um, what crypto asset. But I think the the thought was, whatever you're invested in, whatever the value would be, is what you should be able to get out, right? Um, but the the, the the fact of the matter is that Alameda did have investments 
that they were making with this money. Yes, it was wrong to, to mix the two and not disclose it. Absolutely. And I think that's why he was charged with fraud and conspiracy. But at the end of the day, he didn't walk off with the money. He, he did spend it wildly. Like you said, he sent it here, there, and everywhere, which is part of this effective altruism thing. But he actually thought, this is why the book is called, uh, I think it's called uh, something to do with infinity, because he felt he had infinity dollars to spend. <laughs> this is the way the guy was thinking. That the money, eight, $8 billion to him was a rounding error. <laughs> There's true. a lot of money I, flying I, through there. Yeah, I think I think he actually thought that, and I mean this is part of his. Yep. The guy his, was, the guy was giving billions of dollars yep. to political candidates. The majority going to the left, right? The majority went to the Democrats. I don't know if it was billions, but it was money. It was it was it was. I'm sorry, I did say billions. It's millions, forty million in political donations. Um, 27 million of it went to the Protect Our Future PAC, which spent nearly all of that in support of 19 Democrat House candidates. Um, he says, SBF says he reported to re or donated to Republicans through dark channels, uh, so it couldn't be reported on, right? And so he didn't want it out there that he was donating to Republicans, but he was transparent with his Democrat donations. Uh, he also had many individual contributions, which made they're easy to find online. All of that was the Democrats, and it was right at the limit or below the limit for an individual. Um, I I do think a lot of the political donations, obviously, you wanted to grow the business. You could say that. But with more than half going to Democrats, he definitely had political favor for them. And, I, I again, I'd argue that he gambled a little bit that he knew he was making some mistakes and if he got in trouble it'd be one thing but if he, he donated enough to these political candidates he could find yeah, a way out of I don't, it. I, and he's I, still I, me I don't I don't think based upon what I read um, and I don't know if Michael Lewis was telling it like it is but it makes more sense to me that he was just I mean total lack of control Total lack of people who understood controls of the business. Are you making the argument that we should that the justice system should be lenient on him? Or are you just saying he was an idiot and he still has to pay the price? I don't think it serves any purpose to lock him up for 110 years. You feel that way about Trump because you can make the argument that Trump wasn't inciting an insurrection and Trump truly believed that the uh, you're gonna, the me, election. you're gonna have me compare SBF to Trump? No, I don't, I don't because I don't, the argument you're I, making about SBF is the same argument Trump's I, making I, about himself I, right now. No, just like SBF, who I don't think should ever be involved in the security industries or any sale of any any crypto assets. I don't think Trump should be running a political campaign anymore, given that he doesn't think that he can lose an election. Um, I think that's disqualifying. Um, so yeah, I I don't necessarily think. He should be locked up, but he should not uh, be able to run for public office again. Um, so that's, yeah, I don't think I don't think Sam Bankman-Fried should run a a, a a financial exchange. I don't think he's qualified, um, but I don't think locking somebody up like that for 110 years uh, is serving any purpose other than making some people feel good. Uh, 
I would like to talk about effective altruism, and and this ties into the abortion, and this comes out right right out of the the Michael Lewis book, and it kind of shows you how it's going to challenge you here, but it's kind of a weird way to think about it, but I brought this thing up because I I never thought of this this way, but he said, and this is from the book, then Sam framed abortion as a utilitarian might. Not by dwelling on the rights of the mother or the rights of the unborn child, but evaluating the utility of either course of action. There are lots of good reasons why murder is usually a really bad thing. You could cause distress to the friends and family of the murdered. You could cause society to lose a potentially valuable member in which it has already invested a lot of food and education and resources. And you take away the life of a person who has already invested a lot into it. But none of these apply to abortion. In fact, if you think about the actual consequences of an abortion, except for the distress caused to the parents, which they're in the best position to evaluate, there are a few differences from if the fetus had never been conceived in the first place. In other words, to a utilitarian, abortion looks a lot like birth control. In the end, murder is just a word, and what's important isn't whether you... I I know I said it would challenge you. It's just a word, and what's important isn't whether, whether you try to apply the word to a situation but the facts of the situation that caused you to describe it as murder in the first place. And in that case, and in the case of abortion, few of the things that make murder so bad apply. So I'm not agreeing, disagreeing or anything. Robbing with that. society Although of I, the benefits I generally that they've would disagree. contributed to this individual. Right. Robbing society of the benefits the individual could have contributed to society. So they talk about a normal murder, murder there saying, but they, by killing this individual, you take them out of society and they can no longer benefit society. How well, many people How many people discovered penicillin? But they, they're it? saying... One. One individual, right? There's a little bit of luck there. One individual discovered penicillin. Now, it's possible 5, 10, 15 years could have gone by, penicillin would have been discovered. That individual had been aborted. A lot of people would have died. That individual would have never been able to discover penicillin and the benefits that it had. So you're assuming Correct. a high level of utility for that life, right? Absolutely. And, you're, and you're, another thing effective altruism says that making a difference requires that something wouldn't have happened anyway. So you could also make the argument that if it wasn't that child, another child who would have been born the day after and not aborted would have found the, the cure to penicillin. I'm just so saying that this is the way they think to be in it. the same spot when the bacteria floated into the petri dish and the petri dish he placed there would have done that and everything would have been treated this i just i don't just, just as likely for the the next baby to 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 invent it I, i'm not ag- i'm not agreeing or agree, agreeing that this is i'm just saying that this is the way this guy was thinking which is totally different than probably society in general thinks about things so to look at the whole situation in the same way that we would look at it and maybe it's all BS. Maybe maybe never honestly believe this to be the case. But that's a pretty radical view versus the way many people would think about things, right? Well, this is why you Simply have to apply law to the there's, situation there's, rather than the situation there's, to the law. Right. There's no empathy involved. There's no, there's no feeling. It's simply a utilitarian function saying, well, we, didn't, we haven't invested anything in that fetus yet. Nobody ha- really has emotional feelings, feelings except for possibly the parent, right? So, net net, they should be the ones who decide, right? Um, 
it's it's a strange way to look at things. I, I admit, but that's kind of the mindset that these people were coming into this this whole situation with, which then leads to very different decisions and about what's right and wrong from what yeah, we used to. I, I, I disagree, though, because the, the law is still the law, and the law is written oh, I, that way for a reason. And so his first, you know, his lawyers, anybody else, due diligence, what does the law say I can or cannot do? And obviously he did something outside of what the law said he could do. That information was there for him. He should have known it. He may not have known it. He may have been naive. He may have had the best intentions. But he broke the law. Oh, I agree. I, I mean, I think he should be convicted. The, the question is, what should the penalty be? And did he come at it from an intent? Like Bernie Madoff, everything I know about that, the guy was involved in the securities interest industry all his life. He knew exactly what he was doing. I don't think this kid knew. I think he was coming from a very different mindset. Uh, I think he was brilliant, uh, but not brilliant in a way that that would that would lead away from what happened here. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of all I'm saying. That it's it's just a yeah. I'm not arguing that he was smart. I think he was too. I mean, it's an idea I would have loved to have been able to vocalize and argue and market the way he did because it's a great idea. He had he had a vision to improve things, I think that's absolutely fantastic. That said, those, you know, there's a fine line between genius and insanity. He's also yep. did some really stupid things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's all I had to say about that, because I, I thought it was interesting. It's kind of topical. It Due diligence. Kind of came up in the last week, and I, I sort of read the book. and um, But, yeah, I, I agree. He, he should be held to account. The law is the law. Um Although, in regards to crypto, it's still kind of being written. Um, so, anything else on that, Bob? So, anyway. Um, and you want to mention, too, didn't SBF have an idea of uh, paying Trump not to run? Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah. And evidently, supposedly, in the book, they wouldn't say, supposedly they heard back from the Trump camp that it was probably around five billion, which seems about right, right? Maybe ten. You know, you know, they probably somebody was entertaining it, right? Sure. There's and probably a number that he would agree to. You think that's legal? And if you're crazy well, enough to try it, I mean, why not? And five billion, ten billion. I mean, I'd probably do a lot for five or ten billion dollars. Certainly not run for president. I'll not run for president if they hand me that. But. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I don't think Trump ran for president for money. No, I think he really. No, no. I mean, maybe he did want some attention. Maybe it's he did narcissism. want more fame. That's maybe it, it was narcissism and ego. Yes, very. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it all is. I think there's probably some of that, but I think he really did want to do better for the country. I think he really did want to help the country. The fact that he's running again, I don't think it's just he wants to show everybody he can do it and get revenge and vengeance. I, I mean, I, I think he really does want to help. Why does, why would he want more of what's been fed to him over the last eight years? I, Cause he I don't gets attention it. and he gets on TV. I'll give you uh, probably 12 well, points. And in truth, what's he going to do with $8 billion? 12.3% 12 12. is his, his care of the country. <laughs> <laughs> if I, if I was going to put a guess on a number, 
and, and 87.7% is uh, attention and narcissism. <laughs> you oh, can come yeah. up with a higher number. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting comment. Uh, but again, that shows how how this, this kid thought of the world, right? I mean, just pay Trump money. not to run. Right. Everything There's got to be money. a number. There's got to be a number. And if I, if I think he's an existential threat to the country, I'll just pay him not to run. That's, that's actually what he thought. And they actually approached him saying, how much money would it take? That's, that's, that's what I'm pointing out, kind of how out of control and wild the whole situation was. Um, and a lot of that money came from the government through all the, bound, the COVID right. funding too, right? That's, yeah. that's interesting. All right. All right. We uh, let's talk about. I think we want to talk about. Although it sounds like we're disagreeing about some things now. I think generally we, you know, I think we're on our eighth or ninth podcast. Generally, we we reach common ground a lot. But I think one of the things that we generally, that based upon our conversations over the years, that we have a fairly fundamental disagreement about is the role of government, um, and the nature of the role of government in our lives. So what I thought we'd do, Bob, is uh, I've created uh, AI personalities, artificial intelligence personalities, with the theory that AI would probably be smarter and more articulate than ourselves. We'll let the listener decide. So I've created a conversation or discussion about the role of government in our lives uh, using uh, chat GPT uh, based upon some inputs in regards to our ideologies and viewpoints. So I thought it might be interesting to see uh, what our AI versions would say about the role of government. So um, let's start out with... Um, so, so the way this is going to work, right, is we took the AI script. We've got the AI script here. You're going to read some of it. I'm going to read some of it. There's a conversation. And then at the end, we'll have some commentary. Yep. So I'm just going to skip to the discussion here in regards to, uh, you know, in my view, the role of government is pivotal in ensuring a just and equitable society. Government serves as the bedrock upon which social progress is built. It has a responsibility to provide essential services, such as education and health care, ensuring that every citizen has access to opportunities regardless of their background. Moreover, because I like to use moreover a lot, government intervention is necessary to regulate markets, prevent exploitation and address economic disparities. By implementing thoughtful policies and fostering innovation, the government can create an environment where businesses thrive and citizens are empowered. A well-functioning government is not just a bureaucratic entity. It's a catalyst for positive change, fostering a society where individual freedoms are balanced with collective responsibility and where the pursuit of the common good takes precedence. The role of government should be limited allowing individuals the freedom to make their own choices and take responsibility for their actions. I believe in minimal government intervention in both the economy and people's personal lives. When government stays small, people have the freedom to innovate, invest, and create businesses without excessive regulations and burdensome taxes. I'm going to interject on myself here, and I'm going to add the word federal before the word government. You're, you're correcting your AI self? I'm correcting my AI self, and I just want to add the word federal in there. <laughs> All right. I trust in the power of free markets to drive economic growth and prosperity. 
as competition fosters efficiency and innovation. While I acknowledge the need for some basic functions like national defense and enforcing contracts, I firmly advocate for a government that empowers individuals to lead their lives without unnecessary restrictions, fostering a society where personal liberty is paramount. Very well said, eh, Bob. Well, Bob, considering your belief in minimal government intervention, how do you envision addressing societal changes that may require collective efforts, such as tackling climate change or ensuring access to quality health care for all citizens without compromising individual freedom? Well, thanks for asking, Kevin. AI hey, Kevin. You're addressing welcome. societal challenges like climate change and health care without extensive government involvement requires fostering a sense of individual and community responsibility. In the case of climate change, innovation and market-driven solutions can play a significant role. But encourage research and development in renewal, renewable energy sources, promoting eco-friendly practices, and incentivizing business to adopt sustainable technologies that can lead to a meaningful change. As for healthcare, promoting a competitive healthcare market can drive down costs and improve services, encouraging private sectors private sector innovations, reducing regulations that stifle competition, and empowering individuals to make informed choices about their healthcare providers can lead to more efficient and accessible healthcare system. Additionally, community initiatives and voluntary organizations, such as churches, can fill gaps where government intervention is limited. It'll encourage local participation, and foster a sense of social responsibility. It can address these challenges and more while preserving individual freedom and minimizing government intrusion. So, Kevin, given the significant role you believe government should play in society, how do you propose preventing and combating government corruption in a system where government intervention is extensive? What measures do you think are essential to maintain transparency, uh, transparency excuse me, accountability, AI and the Bob public trust? Say that. AI Bob is asking again. <laughs> Say I Bob drinking. Uh, well, yeah, he's not a not a. He Bob. is he's missing Stella as well. I think yeah yeah, yeah. Bob had a six pack of Stella. Let me oh, step back. In a system where government intervention is extensive, what measures do you think are essential to maintain transparency, accountability, and the public's trust? Well, ensuring transparency and combating government corruption is crucial aspects of maintaining a healthy democracy. To address this issue, I advocate for strong checks and balances within the government, implementing comprehensive campaign finance reforms and promoting strict lobbying, lobbying regulations can minimize the undue influence of special interests. Additionally, investing in robust oversight mechanisms, such as independent ethics committees and whistleblower protections can encourage individuals to come forward with information about corruption without fear of retaliation promoting a culture of accountability and ethical conduct within government institutions is essential. Public access to information, protected investigative journalism, and encouraging civic engagement are also vital in holding those in power accountable. Furthermore, fostering a strong independent judiciary is essential in ensuring that corrupt practices are exposed and perpetrators are held accountable under the rule of law. By promoting transparency, accountability, and civic participation, we can work towards minimizing corruption and upholding the integrity of our democratic institutions. God bless America. 
views of the founding fathers are paramount in understanding the principles upon which our nation was built. Founders of the United States envisioned a limited government that protects individual rights and promotes personal freedom. Their belief in individual liberty, private property rights, and limited government intervention resonates strongly with me and other libertarians, and I think conservatives as well, honestly. The Constitution, a foundational document crafted by the visionaries, outlines a government structure that separates powers among different branches, ensuring a system of checks and balances. Bill of Rights is a testament to their commitment to individual freedoms as it protects citizens from government overreach and guarantees essential liberties. I do align my views with the founders' emphasis on self-reliance, personal responsibility, and the idea that government's role should be restricted to safeguarding individual rights and maintaining public order. By embracing the spirit of their vision, we can preserve the essence of what makes our nation unique, a land of opportunity where individual initiatives and freedom are celebrated. Well said. But I believe the perspective of the Founding Fathers is undoubtedly significant, and I respect their contribution to shaping the foundations of our nation. However, it's essential to recognize that our society has evolved significantly since their time. While the principles of individual freedom and limited government intervention remain crucial, the challenges we face today, such as complex economic interdependencies and global issues like climate change, require nuanced and adaptable approaches. The Founding Fathers designed the Constitution to be a living document capable of adapting to the changing needs of society. Their wisdom lies not just in their specific policies, but in the principles of democracy, justice, and equality that they are embedded in our system. Embracing these principles means recognizing the need for a government that can address contemporary challenges, ensuring equal opportunities for all citizens, and adapting our policies to promote social welfare and environmental sustainability. I believe in honoring the spirit of their vision by using their foundational principles as a guide, which will also, while also being open to innovative solutions and policies that address the complexities of the modern world, ultimately striving for a society that upholds the values of freedom, justice, and prosperity for everyone. So Bob, given your stance on limited government intervention, especially in economic matters, how do you propose funding essential public services and infrastructure without relying on taxation? In a society where government services are necessary, how do we strike a balance between minimal taxation and ensuring the well-being of our, all our citizens? That's simple. This is where AI aligns with me personally. But AI <laughs> Bob's going to answer here. So hey, you Bob. can probably take us mostly one in the same here. But a flat tax system, in my opinion, offers a straightforward and fair approach to taxation. By implementing a, fa a flat tax rate where everyone pays the same percentage, of their income regardless of their earnings so this investment income personal income we create a system that is inherently simple treats all citizens equally postcard you're no longer having to pay a tax representative an accountant if you will h&r block or whoever it might be two three four five hundred dollars to do your taxes for you and you're no longer worried about an audit because 15% done, flat tax, nice, easy, it's great. Evidently, H&R Block doesn't sponsor AI, Bob. Well, let's, let's, let's try that for the next podcast. Why is H&R <laughs> Block fantastic? And then why does it suck? <clears throat> Not sponsored by H&R Block. I think I just gonna, a sponsorship You're going to go back. 
You gonna go back on script soon? Yes, right here. Ready? A flat tax eliminates the complexities associated with progressive tax structures. It reduces the need for a complicated tax code, minimizing loopholes and special deductions. This simplicity not only saves time and resources, but also ensures that everyone contributes proportionally, promotes a sense of fairness. Secondly, flat tax encourages economic growth and investment with a consistent tax rate. Individuals and businesses have predictable tax liabilities. It allows for better, better financial planning and decision-making, fosters entrepreneurship, incentivizes savings, and encourages investments, ultimately stimulating economic growth. What do you think about that? I don't know why, you know, I think it's, you know, why you're talking about a fat tax. I think that's, that's, that's really against overweight people. I, I don't like that. <laughs> Did Pers- I say fat personally tax? Being, I have personally fat being tax. over, oh, you know, it wasn't fat tax? <laughs> It's not fat tax. Oh, Although, flat tax, flat tax. If you oh. have any extra, you know, I, I'm all willing to take extra cake or ice cream or. That's right. A cake, cake, cake tax. Well, Bob, I appreciate your perspective, but I find the concept of a flat tax to be rather simplistic in addressing the complexities of our society. While the idea of everyone paying the same percentage might seem fair on the surface, it disproportionately affects low-income individuals and families. A flat tax can place a heavier burden on those who could least afford it, making it challenging for them to meet their basic needs. Or, or AI Kevin sets AI Bob up. Bob, considering your desire for a smaller government, I'm genuinely curious. How far back do we need to roll back the clock to make you happy? Are there specific historical periods or policies that you believe represent the ideal size and scope of government? I'd like to understand better what you envision as the optimal balance between individual freedom and government intervention. I just want to go back to where my parents give me everything and clean me and bathe (laughs) me, feed me. And I have no taxes. AI Bob's regressing. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, AI Bob. Hang on. Let me, let me go. AI Bob, not not you personally, Bob. I don't advocate for a return to any specific historical period. There's merit in acknowledging the principles that guided the early years of the United States. Prior to the Civil War, the government was smaller with limited intervention in citizens' lives and businesses. People had more freedom to make their own choices, and the nation experienced significant economic and social growth. During that time, there was a strong emphasis on individual responsibility, self-reliance, and entrepreneurship. People relied on local communities and voluntary cooperation rather than excessive government oversight to address societal needs. This period, marked by a focus on personal freedom and limited government intrusion, serves as a valuable reference point for those of us who believe in individual liberty or in individual liberty and more hands and a more hands-off approach from the government. It is essential to recognize that times have changed. We can, can't simply replicate the past. We need to apply principles that worked in the past to modern context, finding innovative solutions that promote personal freedom, economic prosperity, and individual responsibility in today's complex world. Indeed, Bob, the economic growth during that period was influenced significantly by factors like free land and unfortunately, as you may recall, the use of slave labor in some regions. Acknowledging the historical context is crucial. As we reflect on those times, it's important to consider not only the principles that worked, but also the injustices and inequalities that were prevalent. In our perspective, I advocate for a wealth tax and higher taxes on the wealthiest individuals, not at a spite for success, but as a means to address 
the growing wealth gap and invest in our society's future. A wealth tax levied on the ultra-rich, that's you, Bob, can fund essential public services, education, healthcare, and infrastructure projects. It's a way to ensure that those who have benefited the most from our society contribute proportionally to its well-being. Regarding higher taxes, historically, the United States has experienced periods of economic growth with significantly higher taxes, including a tarp marginal rate of 90% during the mid-20th century. These higher rates helped fund vital programs, infrastructure projects, and social services that benefited the entire nation. They facilitated economic stability and reduced income inequality. Implementing similar tax policies today can bridge the wealth gap, fund social safety nets, and invest in education and healthcare, ensuring a more equitable society for all. By encouraging the wealthiest individuals to contribute more to society, we could create a fairer system that promotes opportunity and shared prosperity. I don't appreciate you calling me rich. I can hardly afford, I can't even afford pants. <laughs> that's that's a personal choice. <laughs> yeah, that's why you stopped inviting me over, I suppose. <laughs> Besides that, you probably know that when I show up to your house, you're going to realize that I'm going to tell you your ideas are simply out of touch with reality. Wealth tax and a 90% tax rate? That's nothing short of crazy. Instead of pushing these extreme policies, maybe you should consider moving to Scandinavia where these ideas are already in place. Let's see how those policies work out in practice before advocating for such measures. In the real world, we need practical solutions that promote individual freedom and economic growth, not unworkable schemes that stifle innovation and burden hardworking Americans. Your ideas are quite Marxist. They align well with the socialist theories. Marx believed in heavy government intervention, wealth redistribution, and a classless society. But history has shown us the failures of such ideologies. Look at the countries that have embraced Marxist principles. They often end up with authoritarian regimes, lack of individual freedoms, and economic stagnation. We should learn from the mistakes of the past, focus on promoting free market principles, individual liberty, and personal responsibility. Marx's ideas might sound appealing in theory, but in practice they lead to inefficiency, a lack of innovation, and stifling of individual creativity. We need to strike a balance between addressing societal needs and preserving the fundamental principles that have made our country prosperous. I must say, Bob, your comparison of my ideas to Karl Marx is quite off the mark. I actually prefer the ideas of Groucho, <laughs> his brother. I believe it's a balanced approach that combines individual freedom with social responsibility, not a rigid ideology. It's disheartening that you resort to such extreme comparisons. Given our differences, I might indeed consider moving to a country like Scandinavia. I don't think Scandinavia is a country, AA, Kevin. Where there's a robust social safety net, high quality education, and healthcare for all citizens. Plus, they make good, good Danish. It's a place where the balance between individual freedom and social welfare seems to work effectively. Perhaps experiencing firsthand how such policies function in a successful society would provide valuable insights. Regardless, I hope for a future where respectful dialogue and understanding can bridge our ideological gaps. Good luck chasing your Marxian utopia in Scandinavia or wherever you end up. Real world operates on principles of personal freedom, individual responsibility, and limited government intervention. While your intentions may be noble, your ideas don't align with the practical realities of a thriving society. I hope you find what you're looking for, but I'll stick with advocating for a system that encourages self-reliance, 
innovation, and economic growth. But I will take a Danish. They're good. Cinnamon rolls. Well, Bob, if you're looking for a unique perspective to balance out your podcast, since I'll be living in Scandinavia, why not consider reaching out to Kid Rock? He's known for his outspoken views, and having him as your sidekick could be an interesting dynamic to your discussions. It might bring a different flavor to your show and generate engaging conversations unlike this one. And who knows, it could be a compelling way to explore diverse viewpoints and entertain your audience for once. All right, so here we go. That was an AI conversation. I think a lot of it aligns. Wait, you didn't... Pretty you closely didn't, to the... Your, I your, know, I, I'm a little short, sign off, but... Your, your sign-off was... I, I did an old English sign-off. That's what I told AI Bob to say. So I'm going to read it if you don't. But I'm, I'm a young Italian. That's the problem. Okay, AI okay, Bob, here we go. Right. Verily... Actually, I don't understand old English very well because I'm not really sure what verily means. Fairly well, Kevin. May thy day be filled with prosperity and contentment. Until we meet again, I bid thee good day. Good day. Good day to you, Bob. AI Bob. Good day. So, so I here's the thing. Yep. A lot uh, of it kind of closely aligns. AI is getting better, right? It's a conversation that made sense, mostly. You could tell I wanted to interject here and there with my own ideas, and I held back a bit there. Um, but I think from a libertarian standpoint... Almost everything should be done at the state level. This is not AI stuff anymore. Just to clarify that, right, to me. Um, except generally provide for the general defense and ensure the Constitution isn't being violated at the state level. Um, uh, obviously, minimum public and environmental health guidance should be given. But private industry and lobbyists should be prevented from input as well, right? So, yeah, we don't want filthy, dirty air killing people. We don't want to be drinking bad water and all the fish in the lakes and, and rivers and oceans to die. But at the same time, if those decisions are based, made based on money from lobbyists, then they're really just as useless as doing nothing. Uh, that's what I believe. Uh, first and foremost, the Constitution is more of a restriction on the feds than it is rights given to the people. So let me understand this. You're fine with big government as long as it's state and local government? Absolutely. Oh. It's easier to move why, from state to state than it is country to country. So you can pick your poison. Is what, that what what's best for your community? Your community should decide. And your state is much more of a community or on a closer level to a community than, than the feds are. Don't you? Uh, yeah. You to put I mean, states, at, states responsible for education. States responsible for infrastructure that obviously includes bridges and highways and zoning laws and things like that. And that said, states should be liable in cases of lawsuits from other states. So let's say you're in, I don't know, Illinois. And right on the Illinois side of the river sits a big chemical plant that just decides to pour all of its toxic sludge in the river right as it enters I don't know, let's say Indiana. And all of a sudden, all the fish on the Indiana side are dead and people are getting cancer and sick. Absolutely, Illinois and the business that dumped that should be liable for damages. Right. But then there's probably some minimal, you know, I'll lean on the feds a little bit to provide guidance, right? 
should provide guidance, and I'll trust their guidance a lot more if lobbyists aren't making decisions on behalf of the, the regulators. But I, I really I do had... think government creates corrupt, creates corruption more often than business creates corruption. So you don't have a problem with government. You just have a problem with federal government? Absolutely. This is, is that a libertarian like, view? I it is. Libertarians it want is. limited government no matter where. You, the liber, libertarians want limited government no matter where. That said, right. a libertarian can move from state A to state B to get that it's state rights. Like you did. Not like you I did. left Illinois to go to more freedom-loving Tennessee. That's right. And five years down the road, I may decide there's something about the freedom that I don't like. And I might want to move somewhere more restrictive because I'm more comfortable there. Whatever that reason behind it might be. But I can do it. That said, for me to move from the United States, let's say to, I don't know, let's go with Japan. It's a lot more difficult. And the feds will still tax me. So you don't think there should be a Department of Education at a federal level? You don't think there should be a department or an EPA necessarily? Each state should be able to decide whether they want to pollute or not? I agree. Yes. That's it. I mean, there should be some minimum guidance, right? You should not be allowed to pump endless amounts of lead in the air. I think that's reasonable. There should be some minimum amount. No FDA, no, no CDC. That's all guidance, on the states. Guidance, That's all on the not states. regulation. Guidance, not regulation. Does that make sense? No. Regulation should be on the states. Guidance can be given by the feds. So nothing in law will just say, here are some ideas to think about states in regards to the quality of your food products. And, it, you know, if you go to Tennessee, you might get a bad burger because they don't care that much about the quality of food, right? But after two or three bad burgers, you're going to realize either the state needs to resolve the problem. Probably the state's not going to resolve the problem in the businesses because people aren't. If Burger Joint A is serving you bad burgers three times in a row, certainly Burger joint B is going to realize there's a market for them if they just serve you a burger that's not going to make you sick, right? Yeah. But don't we have a f representative federal government that, in theory, should represent your interests on these points? And there are no. Are there but no today, do, do, does the federal government represent anybody's interest outside of the lobbyists at this point? Well, what, what's the difference between a state government? I mean, I, I would point out that state governments are in some ways more corrupt. State and local governments have been proven more corrupt than the federal government. The state governments are being propped up in many cases by the federal government based on political alignment. The states couldn't wait to get Trump out of there because they knew the, the especially the liberal states, because they knew the feds were going to pour a bunch of money in there under the guise of uh, helping them out through the, because of the COVID difficulty. So you're saying outside of federal intervention, the states would toe the line better. Absolutely. Oh, that's utopian society you're living in. I thought we, I thought we fought. I thought there was an Articles of Confederation, and then we fought a civil war over this stuff, and we agreed that 
strong federal government the, the south the did not States. like the overregulation and the taxes of the federal government at that time and that's really what it was about it was slavery was an influence but it was much less about slavery than it was government overreach and taxation right and they lost they did lose so, so we had a we had a war about this stuff and now we're still relitigating all of it 150 years later. That's what I don't understand. And we're talking about succession and all that all over again. The Constitution still exists. It's interpretation <laughs> of the Constitution that's different. With the expansive role of federal government. So exactly. I was going to talk about education and stuff, but you, you believe that the government should be involved in education. It shouldn't be. A the state or the feds? Any level of government, local, state. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever. I mean, okay. the, the state should absolutely have a right so to you, dictate. Well, but do you believe that today they, the feds the, are the feds are dictating it by saying we're going to give you this much money if you teach this, 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 and don't teach a, you know ABC. And if you do teach ABC, we're going to stop sending you this money, and it's it's dictated that way. Yeah, I mean, I I'm almost. I mean, I've read many books on education. My two biggest things is education and healthcare. Um, that I think we need to f come up with a different solution here. I just read a whole book about education and how uh, No Child Left Behind and uh, Race to the Top, which I think was Obama's program, have all set up these testing programs at a federal level. So um, privatization of healthcare can occur through charters and vouchers. Um, so I was wondering your your opinion on. So you think the government has the uh, duty to provide education to its citizens. It's not on the citizens to provide. Because I've personally provided hundreds, as a childless couple, I've provided hundreds, I added, I've added it up over the years, hundreds of thousands of dollars towards other people's kids' education. Yeah, I think that's up to the state. I could have so bought let's a just nice say, If California stopped funding schools and every other state in the union decided they were going to fund schools and you could have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars moving to California. That would be a fair option for you, right? And so people without know, kids would all go to California to live. Potentially. Which yeah. in effect is what, why, you know, taxes in Arizona and Florida are low because they're somewhat older populations, I would guess. And so they don't care about schools as much. <laughs> In the yeah, retirement right. years, because they don't have school-aged children, so and the retired people don't have occurs. income, and yeah, exactly, or non-pension income anyway, and, and dividend income, and those sort of things. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I thought you were more against government size, but it sounds like it depends on what level. Um, what yeah, level exactly, federal government needs to shrink drastically. And the states then can make the decision what's best for them. And then you can pick your your level of desire by moving and, to And it. states can learn from Moving your states. family, your extended family, and whoever, mm -hmm. your job and whoever else you got to move. Cause and it's, yep, it's and states compete. States were more likely to compete that way. So states learn from other yeah. states and states will compete for for tax money. Yeah, I think we've talked about that before. That, that, that creates a kind of a downward spiral, I think. Um, in providing fewer and fewer services, which 
I guess if you want a limited government, that that helps, right? Because they'll say, well, we're gonna we're gonna give tax breaks to create jobs here, but then we're not gonna fund services. We're gonna have low taxes and low overhead. I guess at the end of the day, if you're happy with that, or if you send your kids to private schools or or what have you, um, then I guess that's your choice. So I've always thought yeah. I always thought we were the United States. So I generally like everything sort of the same versus if I live in this state, it's terribly different than that state. But maybe that's kind of where we end up going, that there's the sorting of the country that we're still sort of united on the federal level. But there's more variance between states. And I think I think that's something that we'll probably see over time. If you're a state that wants to grow, you're going to have laws that are going to have families with children move there. So you're probably going to have a good education system, right? That said, you want businesses to move there, so you're going to have generally lower taxes as well, at least on the you know the business side. Maybe not the maybe or maybe not the individual income tax side. Regardless, eventually you're going to find some sort of an equilibrium that works for you until another state figures out something better, and then comes a competition you start to work towards what's better and again there's even more to it right i mean your industry in california and new york is going to be drastically different than your industry in nebraska therefore you need to teach different things it's not going to be uniform across the country when you have a federal influence yeah, that's more heavy you're all teaching the same thing and it, it's a disadvantage to local communities well i think education is pretty local to begin with i i I, I agree with you on education that the Department of Education is probably not necessary um, and the programs that it instills are probably not necessary. But then you get into other things, like I said, as far as the FDA, uh, regulating airports, the, the TSA. I mean, as you go through the list of government agencies, you got Homeland Security. A lot of it's spent on security and military anyway. From the federal yeah, and, and and general defense is clearly handed through the the constitution to the government right the feds so i think there's obviously you know and that's why i would maybe argue for a relatively low 10 or 15 percent flat tax at the government federal government level yeah i don't know to if fund that there. i don't i don't think all those other agencies cost that much more money but uh, I don't. I don't think the math adds up there. But um, the question is, like, what do you do away with uh, on the federal level? Education, Department of Education, I think is low hanging fruit. I think some of the other stuff is probably not as low hanging fruit uh, as you would like to to think, because you're not going to have states issuing their own currency, their own. Think about how cheap the IRS would be, before. and how much how much money we could reduce spending at the IRS if it was simple 15 per, 15% flat tax. It's a postcard. Simple yeah. as that. My that income cost- was $100,000 this year. I owe the government $15,000. It's done. There's no loopholes. There's no risk of getting audited and then finding out that, oh, you were supposed to calculate this income this way and the other income that way and your third income the other way. And there's a deduction here because of this and that. It's it's ridiculous. You'd save accountants for businesses, 
you would say, you know, tax representatives for individuals, and you would say so, IRS agents. So even somebody who's at the poverty level, you, they'd be paying tax. Fifteen percent. Okay. No, there wouldn't be any minimum threshold in your view. Everyone needs to contribute. That's right. Interesting. So that would be hugely regressive, then, right? That would that would lead to a bigger disparity in the wealth gap than anything you could ever imagine. I disagree. Oh, there's no doubt. What? What? All right. So the poorest of the poor, but they're they're the working poor, right? They're not the the addicted or the sick, because those people are probably not making money that's trackable anyway and traceable. So. Minimum wage. What's minimum wage? Fifteen dollars. It's probably not fifteen dollars an hour. It's probably. It depends on the state. So somewhere between eight and. Let's say somebody makes 15. twenty thousand dollars a year. You're going to take. Yep. Three thousand dollars away from them. Yes. And but somebody if somebody makes a thousand dollars, you're going to make take fifteen thousand away from. Them. And a million will be one hundred and fifty. Right. Ten million. One point five. So on. Now, I, yeah. I do agree that some – so don't you think the wealthy still are going to hide income? Well, um, I think they're less likely to. I mean, you, you can – I'm not opposed to making the laws such as if you hide income, we'll take 100% of it. You want to do that? That's fine. Then you need an don't IRS. So you still need an IRS. Uh, yeah, you, you would still need an IRS, but at a much lower level. I don't know, maybe a much higher level, because now you've get, now you've given them really a lot of incentives to. It would just transfer from accountants to. Uh, I don't know. I disagree with that. People trying to find the income. If you could pay, if you make, if you owe one point five million dollars and ten million ten million dollars a year, is it worth it to? Potentially give up all of it, give up your whole ten million dollars just to hide. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. Where's that that'd income coming from? Where's that income coming from that you can hide it that easily? That'd be fun. We could set up like a TV show with they would go after these guys, and then we could see them pay the money and go bankrupt. Because today, it's I mean, you got you know you got disgrace. people potentially making money from. a bunch of different areas, whether it's, you know, an investment income could be real estate, could be in some, one of the markets could be a normal nine to five job. Um, there, there's a lot of, you know, and, and, and there's different rates applied to each, right? How long have you held the stock? Was it a year? Or was it under a year? Um, hey, there's a strategy, you know, the rich people know that, it might benefit you to sell a bunch of stock at a loss at the end of the year, right? Because that'll save you a certain amount of money versus um, hanging on to it in the hope that you're going to win. You'll, you'll make more money by being able to deduct that loss long-term than you would potentially if you hung on to that. And you'll save more money than the tax you have to pay on your gains. Because you can deduct, you can deduct a certain, you can deduct a higher percentage of a loss than you than you do 
then, then you have to pay on gains at a certain level when you hold your stock, right? Yeah, I mean, I just have never bought the flat tax because one, I think, I think, I think more than fifty percent of people in this country now pay no federal income tax. Um, okay, I mean, there's a lot of money hanging out there. So you're you're gonna make them pay tax, right? And then you're gonna set a level of tax where the wealthy are gonna pay less on a tax rate. So then it's a question of how much are they reporting as income. And my assumption is they're always going to find ways to hide income. There's no, there's no longer deductions. Because so if you're going to hide that income, that's, that's what rich people do. They'll, if they'll you're going to hide that overseas, income, you're you're, you're moving it. Yeah, yeah, you're going to move it overseas. I mean that that would be the one way. There'll be some you way to hide that income. It. So in effect, you're going to be having other people pay. With modern more. technology, you can see money coming back into the country. Well, I don't think anyone's talking about a flat tax, but it's an interesting concept. So, one before we go, what is your concept on healthcare? That's something that the government shouldn't be involved in at all. But I mean, I always come from. I don't think it's a right, but I think having nationalized healthcare, which most, I think, almost all uh, advanced societies in the world have some form of health insurance companies are making ridiculous amounts yes, of money since 2020 exactly. way more exactly. than they ever did was and, and, and Obamacare was supposed to fix that right I don't know Obamacare if Obamacare still in I, place no 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 I, I think Obamacare was a a boom for the private insurance market but I it mean, was supposed to fix that and that's exactly what I was saying when Obamacare got passed uh, this isn't this isn't going to help people this is going to help industry it wasn't yeah. about people. It no was about lobbyists. Well, I think it does help people because it provides an ability to get health care uh, outside of being tied to an employer. So I do think having the exchange as, one, a private business owner, now a retired person that's that needs uh, private insurance, uh, I think that is helpful to have exchanges um, where you can buy uh, private insurance and they're all set to a certain standard that you know that you're going to get at least a minimum uh, level of care. I think that's a good thing. I don't think that was the right solution. I think the right solution would be to allow people to buy into a nationalized program such as Medicare because I think the the efficiency of Medicare uh, and the ability to negotiate, which they're starting on a very limited basis to do as far as prescription drug pricing and maybe some other services. I mean, I've seen Medicare bills versus private insurance bills. Medicare reimburses much less than private insurance to the, to the same doctors. Um, so they do negotiate. Uh, now you could say some doctors don't take Medicare and would only take private insurance. That's likely the case on the margin. I, but yeah, I if, think there's, if you want to go there, to a top doctor, you could pay for it. Right. Yeah. There, there's not a great answer. I've got a lot of thoughts and ideas, you know, I don't know if any of them are right. One is do away with insurance altogether. It'll lower costs. It'll lower costs so much though, that there won't be much left to the, the market at this point because of the way costs have been driven up. What do you mean? Just private, private pay everything? Yep. Out of, you're out of your pocket, just like the good old days. Exactly. Um, at, at this point, because the costs are so inflated, it would completely collapse the the healthcare industry. 
right? So that's that's not a great option now. We're already too deep into it. Um, well, it used to be private parity or charity care, right? I mean, it used to be charity or or you just if you couldn't afford it, you just didn't get healthcare. And I think healthcare wasn't that advanced back then. I mean, private pay healthcare basically came up in this country after World War Two. Um, I don't think necessarily think that's where we should go. I do think we need some type of solution because I think even Obamacare has kind of made it all more complicated. Um, Single payer, I have, I have real concerns with about innovation. And I've got real yeah, concerns always... with kickbacks to government. Right? We're going to yeah, give I mean, you guys are... the contract this this cycle because, well, you paid off Senator so-and-so. Yeah, I mean, the argument would be innovation. The argument would be uh, access, right? The quote-unquote death panels. Uh, well, you, you're on this list because you're not a priority to get your hip replaced. You have to wait five years. Yep. That, that happens in countries with, I mean, that's, that's a fact of having a nationalized health care. But then again, I think generally our country demands too much health care, pays too much, and gets too little. Uh, the end result is no better than elsewhere. So the question is, is that system working for us or not? And I would say not. And I think the only way to really solve it is to get a more uh, government involvement, unfortunately, because I think the system as it's set up now is, like you said, the insurance companies, the intermediaries on prescription drugs, these prescription management organizations, everyone's making tons and tons of money between you and your health care. Yes, there will be corruption and there will be kickbacks and things in government, and we should try to root it out. But to have the system that we have now. Yeah, um, I think you're, you're going to need some regulation in this space, and maybe it's a tax or, I mean, a cap on um, markup, right? We're going to allow you to make 30% profit. You sell a drug, you get 30% profit. If you sell a healthcare machine, you get 30% profit. Yep. If you do a healthcare service, I don't know, heart surgery, the hospital gets 30% profit. Right? Yeah, and, and, that, and you, you, you cap it at a percentage, and you maybe get to the right spot. Maybe you handle that by state. I think maybe that, that's an area where by state might be trouble because, let's just say, Kentucky marks... 10%, right? You get 10% profit and Illinois marks 15% profit. Everybody's going to go over to Illinois. I, I, I could see a state-by-state state issue being a problem there. I think probably the cleanest way to do it, though, is to market at that level. This is what you're and allowed I, to make. And I think that's where, what Medicare basically does as far as its reimbursement percentages. They go in and say, what's the actual cost of this procedure? And we're going to allow you a significant enough profit margin and beyond that, we're not. So um, they set all these rates for various procedures, and they re reimburse at that rates. Now, private insurance companies kind of do the same thing. They negotiate rates for various procedures, but they're not as effective because they don't have the, the overall power, uh, and they could get premiums from – they could just raise premiums, right? So they don't have as much as incentive to reduce that uh, – as the federal government does. But yeah, I mean, something along those lines, as far as the industry goes, that's sort of a little bit of a price fixing scheme, but um, 
or we could just have the federal government do it and everyone just have the same. We could still have private insurance. People could still buy private insurance, but most of the country would be on the same program and buy into it um, so that we could get the economies of scale and institute some of that kind of cost plus type situation that you're talking yeah, about. And, and I don't know if you regulate insurance companies. I think you, you regulate, you know, the hospitals and the doctor's offices and the maybe dentists, you know, that sort of thing. Um, specialty care, 30%. Insurance rates should take care of themselves from there because if all state wants to charge X amount and State Farm beats them by X amount, then generally speaking, you know, there's still fair free market competition. Yep. Well, that was a wide-ranging discussion. We, we touched on a couple of the key aspects of government involvement in education and healthcare. Uh, but I think, you know, the conclusion is AI Kevin and AI Bob are more well-spoken, isn't that? More intelligent than us. It definitely use, they definitely use bigger words. So I, I, I do feel kind of threatened that we're going to be easily replaced in the near future, which, you know, generally I'm okay with. You know, I've been giving it some thought because I watched the 60 minute segment and they talked to the guy who was sort of the called the godfather of AI and he was calling them they. And I, that mm. really frightened me. <laughs> and he was genuinely concerned that in the not too distant future, we might have a serious problem. <laughs> I was reading earlier today, I think, that China, within a few years, is planning on an army of robots. I'm not even worried. I don't even know what it looks like, but it was never even, until like a year ago, that was it never even on my radar, despite Terminator and all those movies, that we would actually be replaced, because it always seemed like a Jetsons type of thing, that we we're all going to be on, on, you know, floaty boards going through space, and the that clearly hasn't occurred yet, and we're just we're watching the Kardashians on TV, so we're we're sort of regressing. But when people start talking about AI and its ability, and we're just scratching the surface, one, I'm glad I'm not in the workforce anymore because <laughs> I'd probably be out of a job in a couple years. Uh, so you know, if we could get a robot to wipe my butt as I get older, that would be a that would be a net benefit to me. Uh, but as long as they don't start killing us. I think you're just supposed to get an intern for that sort of thing. Uh, well, that too. Uh, but if they if they start killing us off, I guess that's more of a concern. Yeah, I, I've got concerns about that. I think it's real. But we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Is that what you're telling the girls? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Eh, we'll back see what when happens. My, back when my firstborn was very young, under a year old, I was reading that by the time she's of driving age, she won't need to learn to drive anymore. Yikes. And so that's about eight years away now. We'll see if that holds true. I'm less confident of it now than I was then. But we'll see. Oh, well, they're going to live in a strange new world, but I guess that's the way it always is. But I think it's going to happen you know. quick. Yeah, that faster and faster. That's the way it works. Quantum computing is really interesting. I was uh, reading some of that from a security interest, right? Because quantum computers, the way they work, they're getting very near the point where they can break most of the encryption algorithms out there. Oh, great. You know? So 
Obviously, you're going to need some sort of quantum encryption that makes it difficult on a quantum computer to break. Um, I always so, thought, and, I always and, thought and people are, who... That's one of the things the feds are good at, right? The feds are working now pretty hard on trying to figure that out because so they know it's coming. And obviously, the other countries around the world are trying to do the same thing. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. I always thought the people, you know, who lived off the grid and the, were the hoarders and the, the preppers were, you know, on the fringes. You know, I'm like, ah, it'll be okay. Now I'm like, maybe I should be thinking about this. I think about it all the time, especially with kids. Like, if we go into a war, like a serious war, where do you want to be? you want to be in or near a big city? Or do you want to be in the woods somewhere? Right. I mean, living in rural Wisconsin is definitely a benefit at that point, I think. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> no, granted, I, can... I mean, you still want I'm some right. neighbors. You want to band together with your neighbors to protect yourself. Because, you know, the... the the planes might not be dropping things on you necessarily, but sooner or later there's going to be some ground troops. And that, you people, know what I mean? But people in, in small rural areas, they all know each other. So there is that much more sense of community than you would get in a larger area, which I yeah. which I have found up here. The only problem is, Bob, I have no self-sufficiency. A lot of people up here hunt and fish. I have not learned yet. So I, I guess I better get on that. <laughs> I can... Uh... I can send you some lures that'll work real well for you. You're in a great spot for fishing. That's right. I could do it. I could do it like uh, almost off my deck. Uh, so I sh I should I and I could probably hunt off my deck too. <laughs> I don't know if can't, my neighbors would like that, but I can't I remotely teach aim with, with a with a firearm. But I could I could remotely teach you to fish. <laughs> Maybe I'll just use arrows. <laughs> yeah, that's even harder. <laughs> Well, anyway, Actually, that's a lot to yeah. think about. AI, dystopian universe, and uh, and prepping. Uh, we'll leave we'll leave it on a high note. How many dozens of people will we have put to sleep if they if they made it this far? They're sleeping. <laughs> we could just do ASMR at the end, you know. They, <laughs> just put them to sleep. Oh, we just rub the microphone like this. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Rustle some paper. You're going to put me to sleep. 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 <laughs> Real nice tonic. Oh, go to sleep. All right. We're just going to whisper. Best we, we we're just going to whisper. The, we're going to whisper the conclusion now, Bob. Sleep. Go to sleep. Please join us again in a couple weeks for a new episode.